Podcast. The Profile. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. Hello and welcome to The Profile here on Premier Christian Radio with me, Megan Cornwell. This is the show where we delve into a person's life, faith and ministry. It's brought to you in association with the UK's leading Christian magazine, Premier Christianity. If you would like a free sample copy of our latest issue, head to our website, premierchristianity.com forward slash free sample. Today on The Profile, I'm speaking with Bishop Rachel Truick. Rachel is the Bishop of Gloucester and was the first ever female diocesan bishop to be appointed in the UK. Alongside her work as a leader in the Church of England, she also sits in the House of Lords and is a trustee of several charities. Bishop Rachel, welcome. Thank you. Good to be here. <laughs> Can you tell us a little bit about your life growing up? Were you born into a Christian family? Oh, I was. Uh, my parents took us to church. I'm the youngest of three children and my parents took us to church uh, week by week. Um, I don't remember much about those very early years. What I do remember is that every year my parents used to take us on holiday to North Wales, to Cricketh, where there was something called a beach mission. And I thought they were so kind and generous that every day we were uh, playing games, um, doing quizzes, singing Christian songs on the beach. What I realise now is it was great for them because they could go off and do things and uh, leave us as children being entertained. Um, and then they would join us later in the morning for a service. And that was really key in my growing as a Christian. I learned what it was there to read the Bible, uh, to pray um, to be with older Christians, I thought they were really old, they're probably only in their 20s, but people on the beach mission team um, who were passionate about their faith and uh, and were alive. Mm, brilliant. And at what part in your childhood, at what moment did you think, yes, do you know what, I'm going to give it all to God, I'm going to follow him, I, I, I trust him? Yes, I'm one of those people that finds that a really hard question because I cannot remember a time in my life when I didn't consider that Jesus was my friend. I can remember in the playground in my first year at primary school um, talking to Jesus as my friend. So I think for me, I'm one of those where it's been um, a gradual journey. I do remember a time in my teenage years when someone spoke about Jesus dying on the cross and I'd obviously heard about that before, I'm sure. But I suddenly remember thinking, oh, that's a bit strange and wanting to know more. It's interesting that Jesus' death and resurrection hadn't really featured in my childhood friendship with Jesus. And I think that's fine. Um, it's about the big landscape. But I do remember as a teenager um, having a moment when I definitely prayed and thanked Jesus uh, for dying for me and for loving me that much that he was willing to die for me. Mm. Wow. And what kind of expressions of church were you used to sort of growing up? Were you kind of part of an Anglican church mm. or and was that high Anglican and were you part of a charismatic church? What was the background you were coming from? Yeah. So what's interesting, I think I truly only discovered all these different uh, sorts of church almost when I was at theological college. Um, and that sounds a bit crazy, but for me, I'd always been part of my local church and it had been the Anglican church. So where I grew up in Hertfordshire, uh, in Broxburn in Hertfordshire, um, we'd started off at uh, another Anglican church in Hoddesdon. Then when we moved to Broxbourne, we went there. 
And I guess now, looking back at it, it will be very much a sort of middle of the road, um, traditional Anglican church, but people there of all ages. And it was very much, yeah, local people who wanted to come together to to be the church. So it was liturgical. Um, we had Sunday school. I sang in uh, a robed choir in my church. And in fact, that was probably the, when I look back now, I realise how significant that was that at the age of about, I don't know, 10, I um, I said to the vicar, I want to sing in the choir, but there are only boys in the choir. I obviously was challenging things at that young age. Um, and he couldn't think of a, re- a reason why not really. And so soon there were girls in the choir. So yes, that was my experience being a very local, traditional, but lively church. Um, there's many traditional hymns, I guess, but I do remember that myself and my friend, who was actually the vicar's daughter, um, once we'd learned to play the guitar, we'd sometimes be out at the front wanting to teach people more contemporary songs. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. Um, and Rachel, moving to the, your later years then, you uh, you worked for the NHS, didn't you, for I several did. years as a speech and language therapist. Yes. What did you learn in that time? What were kind of the main takeaways from that role? Mm. Well, as I look back on my life, I can really see how relationship has been core to who I am. One of the reasons I think I was attracted to speech and language therapy was about enabling good relationship, which involves communication, not always speaking, but involves us being able to communicate and relate well to one another. And I learned more about that as a speech and language therapist. Um, I worked in London throughout that time. And, you know, as a young adult, when I left university, I found myself working with families in situations I hadn't really encountered before. People in uh, in poverty, in struggling relationships with difficult backgrounds. Um, I worked in social services, day nurseries, as they were in, in those days, did a lot of home visits. And I began to work with families with children with disabilities. I worked for a while for the child development team attached to the Royal Free Hospital. And our work began really as soon as children were diagnosed, whether that was at birth or a little bit later. So that was about how do you enable families to deal with something they weren't expecting and yet to still um, yeah, manage to relate well together in those situations and to get the support they needed for their child. So I would say I learned a lot about relationship um, and the struggles of life. I also learned a lot about leadership. Um, I moved to a place where I managed a team of speech and language therapists, paediatric therapists. I learned a lot about uh, management, leadership, working well in teams. Um, I worked as part of a multidisciplinary team when I was part of the child development team. That was not always an easy time, how we negotiated our differences. Um, and that was true when I was a manager as well. So I, I look back now and I see I see how all those different strands were in me from a young age and how God was weaving those together. Yeah, absolutely. And you did that role for about six years, I believe. Yeah, six or seven years. I can't remember exactly. <laughs> yes. A good, a good chunk of time. Yes. Um, but after that point, you then moved into ordination for the priesthood. Mm. Um, when did you feel that you were being called to that because it's quite a different mm. road to take. So what, what made you change course? Yes. Um, 
well whilst I was a speech and language therapist my my faith was strong my faith carried on growing and I had become involved with a church that met in a gym in fact in a community center um and I began to feel the more and more I got involved there the more and more I saw how my my paid employment life um was also resonating with the way that the church was involved with with the lives of local people and I began to have a sense that God was calling me perhaps to be um in the church working in the church full time um if I'm truly honest I thought that would be about now in my 50s so I plucked up courage to go and speak to the vicar and I I eventually kind of said oh, we're just wondering if one day God might be calling me to work in the church full time and he just sat there and said I've been waiting for you to come and say that which was quite terrifying um he then went on to ask me all sorts of questions like what would your family think what would your friends think how soon could you give up work and i was really like whoa you know and then he very wisely said at the end i'm never going to mention it again i will pray about it you pray about it um and i can't remember the exact time gap but quite a short time gap i do remember as i often tell people it was after a pantomime so i know god has a sense of humor and i literally had a wrestling experience with god i can still picture it to this day i was uh lying in my bed in uh, in the flat I was in at the time and I could hear God saying I want you to explore this avenue and I was crying I was struggling I was trying to convince God why it was much better that I carried on working in the NHS as a Christian um I should also add that I'd begun doing some training as a family therapist at this point which was all again to do with relationship and connection and i was saying to god um i'm sure that i can serve you much better with families in this way and i had a song playing in my head i don't know if that's ever happened to you it happens quite a lot to me that often i'm aware of a piece of music and if i still myself and listen often god speaks to me through that and and the piece of music was quite an old song with the words you laid aside your majesty gave up everything for me and i sense god saying i gave up everything for you and if you are willing to do this for me um it won't actually feel like sacrifice because it will be about you continuing to become the person i've created you to be and really i can honestly say from that moment on i felt peace of course i should add that at this time women could not actually be ordained priest mm. in the church of england and so it's quite hard for me to get back into that space and try and imagine what it was exactly god was calling me to but i knew that it was about taking the next step and the rest as they say is history that's fascinating because of course women weren't allowed into the priesthood until the, until the 90s mm. um so are we talking was this in in the 80s this, this was 91 right um, so and so before. yes so i went to theological <clears throat> college um uh, where I could have been at the end of that time I could be ordained deacon mm. in the Church of England and then usually um, or often you are then um, ordained priest a year on some people do remain as deacons but the majority of people go on to be ordained priest and it was whilst I was at theological college that um, the vote went through general synod mm. for women to be 
ordained priest and I still remember that day very vividly so but I, I just find it quite hard to get back into that space of exactly what was in my mind when I first went to theological college mm. but I knew it was the right next step so it was a real leap of faith in mm. that sense mm. very much so wow thank you for sharing that story um, in 20, 2015, um, Bishop Rachel, you actually made the first female diocesan bishop. That must have been an incredibly exciting moment for you. Can you tell me a bit about that? Yes, um, I've been talking about this with people recently because a lot at the time um, when I was announced as um, the first diocesan bishop in the Church of England, it should be said, um, that people and the media would often say, you know, what does it feel like to be a trailblazer and you know, you're making history and all those things are true. But I can honestly say that at the time I was often saying in interviews and things, I don't feel like a trailblazer. I feel as if I am responding to God's call to take that next step in becoming the person God's created me to be and calling me to be. And I think it truly was only about two years later when I sort of came up for air, that I realised just how momentous that had been. Um, so that's not me being self-deprecating, but it really was, um, it was a bit of a whirlwind. So actually it was just having to do the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. Of course, it was tremendously um, exciting and a great privilege to be consecrated at Canterbury Cathedral. In fact, alongside um, Bishop Sarah, who is now wonderfully uh, Bishop of London, she was being consecrated as a suffragan bishop at the time, Bishop of Crediton, and I was being uh, consecrated to become the Bishop of Gloucester. Um, and then within a few weeks, found myself catapulted into the House of Lords and was the first uh, female bishop to sit in the House of Lords. And I remember that day, and it was very historic. There were a lot of people in the public gallery. But for me, it was just taking that next day and next day and next day. Um, but I do look back and think, gosh, that really was quite momentous. And... Um, and how come it was me? <laughs> <laughs> I guess if you had stopped to think about the enormity of what was happening, you'd probably have fainted. <laughs> yes, and I think if you told me, you know, those going back to that time <clears throat> of my of responding to God's call to go forward for ordination, if you told me at that time that one day I would be a bishop um, and that I would have been the first female Dawson bishop, I think I would either have rolled around laughing or probably run a mile. Mm. Um, so I'm very glad that we don't know what's around the next <laughs> corner, but we just live at each chapter as it comes. Thanks, Rachel. For those of us, for those listening who might be wondering what a bishop actually does day to day, could you just tell tell us what it's like to be a bishop? What's your what's your kind of everyday? What does your everyday look like? Yes, I always dread that question uh, when people say what's a typical day because there is no such thing as a typical day. I guess I would say there are a number of different parts to my role. First and foremost, I am called to be the bishop in my diocese, which is the Diocese of Gloucester. Um, and that means that I am working with my team to set vision, to live that vision, to um, appoint clergy and lay leaders, to look at how we are doing and being church um, in the way that is uh, true to our calling and and uh, and um, how I would see God is asking us to be in that place. Um, it's about the kingdom of God. So I'm called to be a leader in all of that. And we have um, over 300 
parishes in the Diocese of Gloucester. We have lots of fresh expressions of church. We have 117 church schools. Um, there are lots of ways we are doing and being church and I am called to be the bishop and lead people in that place. I obviously am a bishop in the House of Bishops and the College of Bishops within the Church of England and that means it's about how we lead as bishops together across the whole of the Church of England and later on today um, I will be with other bishops as we look at how we are living that. I'm also called to be good news for the world and enable the church to be good news for the world in what I would call the public square. And so I spend quite a lot of my time in the Diocese of Gloucester and beyond using my voice and connecting with many organisations and charities and individuals who are seeking to serve the common good. A lot of those will be followers of Christ. A lot of them won't be. They might be people of a faith other than Christian or of no faith. And yet people who are who are caught up knowingly or unknowingly in God's work of transformation. And it's really important for me that I'm speaking out, that I'm linking um, with those who are working to bring justice, to work for the oppressed, the poor, those who are disadvantaged. So that takes up um, quite a lot of my time. And obviously that links uh, with my the way I use my voice in the House of Lords as well. All those things are interrelated. And for me, it is all about the kingdom of God. And we'll certainly come on to your role in the House of Lords later. But in terms of your ministry, Bishop, what aspects of your role do you find the hardest? Mm. It's quite a lonely role being a bishop. I have a wonderful, wonderful team. Um, I really am blessed with the, with the people around me who are creative, who are committed to Christ, who bring different skills and gifts. And yet at the end of the day, um, you are the Darson Bishop. And at times that can feel uh, quite lonely. Um, I guess one of my, perhaps one of my biggest frustrations, uh, which is something I find hard, is where there is quite a lot of church going, um, but perhaps not a real desire for deep relationship with Jesus Christ. So, um, you know, because we are the Church of England and that's fabulous that we are the established church and therefore have connection with people in their lives that perhaps many other churches don't always have. And yet also that means that we have that traditional role and there are still lots of people who will go to church. Um, and yet perhaps you don't want to see any change mm. and how we handle all that change and both do and live traditional church well and say that the church needs to look different in the 21st century. So I think that's probably something that frustrates me and the speed of change and the way that there is a lot of treacle in our um, legislation in the Church of England. We're working hard at reducing some of that, but we don't perhaps have the um, fleet of foot that perhaps some other denominations have. Um, and that's the flip side, I think. Um, so that can be hard. Um, it can be hard knowing where to use your voice and where to use your time. One of my constant frustrations is that my diary is always very, very full and there are lots of good things and it's working out how to use your time well. And again, I'm very grateful for the advice and wisdom of those around me. But I do get frustrated that I can't use my voice more, that I can't be in more places at any one time. Although I guess it's also important for all of us to realise that this is 
not our striving. If this is about God's work and knowing at any one point how God is asking us to join in with God's work of transformation, not to think it's all about our striving and what we do. Bishop, you talked about, at the beginning of this conversation, talked about friendship with Jesus. Mm. And you just talked about being frustrated that people just simply go to Mm. church. What do you think makes the difference between people who just go to church and just see it as something that they do on a Sunday and people who have a genuine friendship? Mm. How can you cultivate that genuine, genuine friendship? So I would say that one of the things we need to be focusing on a lot in our churches is how we enable people to grow as disciples. Um, it is all there in the Anglican history. The Anglican history is wonderful. And um, sometimes I get frustrated that people don't always see that we don't have to reinvent the wheel. It is all there. We gather together to give God glory, to say sorry, to ask forgiveness, to give God thanks, to bring before God the needs of the world, to be nourished and fed by scripture in prayer, in bread and wine. And then we are sent out to be the church among the people and places of our lives. And that for me is often the disconnect that um, I think often as leaders in the church, we are um, we are not good at saying how does this worship and what we are doing when we gather together prepare you and enable you to go from here, to live that deeper relationship with Jesus Christ? How do we enable people to to pray to open up the scriptures. Um, There is no one way to pray. We're all different personalities. How do we enable people to recognise that actually we're not asking them to be something other than who they are, but to become the person God's created them to be in relationship with other people? And for me, it is all about that challenge of discipleship and and encouraging people and challenging people um, and to share more of our own stories. we talk a lot about, uh, and I talk a lot in our in uh, the Diocese of Gloucester about how we enable people to be confident disciples. And I'm recognising that perhaps that isn't always the right language. It's about how to enable people not to be anxious disciples. Being confident doesn't mean you have all the answers or you are competent, but it's about being able to share your story as a follower of Jesus Christ to talk about what church was like when you went there on a Sunday, to share your doubts as well as the things that you know, to talk about God's love for you. And if we just gossip that good news more and more, um, we would grow as disciples and we would enable others to encounter Jesus Christ. It's about a genuine encounter. It's about our hearts as well as our heads. It seems that um, in terms of the Church of England and the numbers if you look at the stats, um, going back to what you're talking about in terms of evangelism, it, it looks as if we're missing a trick somewhere. You know, the, the continual church decline. Where are we going wrong in terms of evangelism mm. in the UK, in your opinion? Firstly, I certainly don't want to sound defensive. Our numbers in most diocese on Sunday mornings um, are either going down or staying the same. Interestingly, um, some of our highest stats are actually in little villages where it's quite a high percentage of the village who may well be worshipping on a Sunday. So I don't want to deny that. And I want to say that I'm very frustrated that those stats seem to be the only ones we really collect. So if you remove today, as we sit here, if you removed all the youth clubs, the parent and toddler groups, the food banks, the cafes, the after school clubs. Um, If you removed all of that, um, that is being led by the Church of England in conjunction with other Christian churches, 
our country would be severely impoverished and the good news of Jesus would not be hearing and being shown in the way that it is. So that's the first thing I want to say. Let's not get too um, hooked up on um, what's going on on Sunday mornings, but that is important. And then I want to say, yes, we need to look at how we connect better with people. So we are very obsessed and perhaps our stats make us be obsessed about how we get people over the threshold on a Sunday morning. Whereas I want to say, how are we being church Sunday to Saturday among the people and place of our lives? So let me give you a really um, good example. In the Diocese of Gloucester, we are exploring, and it is just at the exploratory stage, what it might look like if we were doing and being church in sports centres, in community sports hubs. If we were to take on some of those community sports hubs, which at the moment um, local authorities, councils are struggling to run, if we took those on unashamedly as church and connected with families and young people and children who are going to those centres, and we did church in a different way. It might look different. We might be using sport to actually do church and worship to share the good news of Christ. We would be connecting with hundreds and hundreds of people who at the moment just think church is irrelevant. Um, they're not going to cross the threshold of a church on a Sunday morning. So you need to go bring the church to them. So we need to be the church mm. in those places. Now, we already have great examples, don't we, of messy church up and down the country, which meets in village halls and community centres and schools. We need to be doing more of that. And we need to be saying, how are those fresh expressions of church truly being church? How are they places where we can disciple people. Um, I'm about to, in a few weeks time, to go and do some baptisms and confirmations um, at a messy church after school. That's great. Um, I've loved doing a baptism um, of two children um, in school time in the context of school worship. So those are some little examples that we need to be going to where people are. So I say, where do people gather now? Where are people and how do we go and be church in those places? And also, how do we enable people to gossip the good news of Jesus in the places where they are? So how are people talking about their faith in pubs and cafes and schools and universities and offices and hospital waiting rooms? Um, how are we enabling people to be those non-anxious disciples and then looking at how we do church in different ways? But of course, in all of that, people who who are growing as Christians in traditional places of worship and in traditional worship may well feel threatened by that. So we've got to look at how we communicate all of that. And I talk about how we create a landscape of varied configuration in the church. How do we have lots of different expressions of church. That brings us to the end of part one of today's show. But join us again to hear more from Bishop Rachel Trewick right after this. Premier Christianity magazine. In this month's issue, we speak to lesbian and gay Christians about their experiences of faith as we uncover a conspiracy of silence in churches around the issue of sexuality. Plus, discover how God provided for five people in their hour of need. And meet the bishop who smashed the stained glass ceiling. All this and more in June's issue. For your free copy, visit premierchristianity.com forward slash free sample. The Profile.
You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. Welcome back to The Profile here on Premier Christian Radio with me, Megan Cornwell, Deputy Editor of Premier Christianity magazine. That's the monthly magazine that sponsors this show. If you would like a free copy of our latest issue, just go to premierchristianity.com forward slash free sample. But for now, it's time to rejoin my interview with Bishop Rachel Treweek. Let's listen in. As we discussed earlier, you have a prominent role in the House of Lords Mm -hmm. and you were the first female bishop in the House of Lords. And you're using that platform, from what I can see, to really champion and advocate for women um, and families in particular. And I guess that's partly because Mm. of the background that Mm. you've had and the experiences that you've had. Do you see it as your role as as a high profile female bishop to to stand up for for vulnerable women? Um, I do. And I'd want to say at the very beginning, it's not that I don't care about men and vulnerable men. I often get um, tweets and emails saying, you obviously don't care then about men in prison or vulnerable men or men who are experiencing domestic violence. I do. And I also think that there needs to be more said about women. I think it has, there is a lot that hasn't been said in the past. And it's something that I just feel God has led me to um, in lots of ways we might call God instances. Um, so In Gloucestershire, we have a wonderful organisation called the Nelson Trust. They work elsewhere as well, who work holistically with vulnerable women. They run the most amazing and fabulous women's centre in the Diocese of Gloucester. Um, That's really touched my heart and made me say, yes, that's what transformation looks like. It's not a Christian organisation, and yet it is reflecting for me the transformation God wants. I have become um, the bishop who is now uh, the bishop for women's prisons. Um, And that's a great privilege. I am absolutely committed to saying, how do we reduce the number of women in our prison, most of whom shouldn't be there? Um, I'm uh, very um, delighted to be an ambassador for the Christian organisation Restored, which raises the um, awareness of domestic violence and particularly how churches are um, are involved in making people aware of that and engaging with that. Um, there are a number of different ways that I've tried to use my voice. I've also been using my voice uh, for young people where possible and particularly in a campaign I've been running at Lidentity, which is saying that who you are is more than what you look like. And that's been working with young people in schools and colleges to really combat the myth that is perpetuated by social media that uh, your worth is all about what you look like. And that's led me most recently to um, be speaking out in the press about um, how we hold social media platforms to account for all the uh, bad things that appear on social media that clearly affect young people and their well-being. Mm. Yeah, that's, those have been quite big stories, haven't they? Um, talking about the press, mm. you have in the past talked about um, referring to God as he <laughs> not being a particularly helpful thing. And you've also said that it could alienate uh, people who you know, don't know that much about church. Do you think that this is a case of trying to bend the church to society? Or do you have a more theological basis for that argument? The the very, very first thing I want to say, and I hope this doesn't get edited out, is that um, I did not say 
that uh, we should not refer to God as he. Unfortunately, um, as you know yourself, often when you're doing media interviews or with papers, uh, things get edited in such a way. And then my inbox and my Twitter feed is inundated with lots of angry people. Um, that's an aside about we need to learn how we handle conflict well, but let me leave that. Um, what I have said is that uh, completely rooted in theology, we are all created in the image of God. That means that you and I as women um, and for girls and little girls, teenage girls, they are created in the image of God as much as boys and men. And what I have said, perhaps because of my, lang my background as a speech and language therapist, I'm very aware that language shapes culture and shapes our perspective. And so when I only hear God referred to as he... Um, it does concern me. And I've had conversations with young people who have um, a view that God is um, a man, often an angry man, usually a white man in the sky. Um, and and uh, we need to work hard as Christians to to challenge some of that. I very, very rarely, I very rarely refer to God as he. If you listen to my sermons, unless I'm quoting um, someone else or something, um, I will simply refer to God as God. It is not difficult. It does not sound false. People don't even know usually that I'm doing it. I'm also quite content, very content with calling, referring to God as she or God as mother and as father. And there is plenty in scripture to support that. Of course, when Jesus walked on earth, um, it would have been very strange for Jesus to have referred to God as she in that culture. And yet uh, Jesus does use some very uh, female imagery, not least of the the mother hen gathering her chicks. Um, the way Jesus related to women was very countercultural, but it would have been very strange if Jesus had referred to God as she or God as mother. Um, I'm also not doing anything new or radical. The uh, early church fathers, uh, particularly Anselm um, and Julian of Norwich, uh, that wonderful early female mystic, referred to God as mother and God as she. But somehow, because uh, perhaps because I was the first female Darson bishop and not everyone agrees with that, um, the media picked up on it. And I want to say yes. In many ways, I want to say yes, bring it on. Let's look at how we're referring to God because we are all created in God's image. Now getting to the nitty gritty of women in leadership in the church, there's still a lot of animosity, isn't there, mm -hmm. um, towards even your very position. And I'm sure you saw that tweet recently that sparked mm, quite a lot of controversy, gosh, yes. likening um, female pastors to sex offenders. Yes. How did you feel reading that? Oh, um, shocked, um, angry, and yet not surprised. I think it was interesting how many people did join in on uh, Twitter and social media. With that, um, I had to hold back my finger. I was glad that the others did. I also know that sometimes um, if I join in with some of those things, it can fan more unhelpful flames. Um, but I absolutely want to say that I found that um, yeah outrageous, and yet I know those views exist. So I guess it's... Um, it's how do we speak into that in a way that says, um, actually, I, I respect that people hold different theological views. 
but I am going to vehemently disagree with people. So in the Church of England, we have found a way forward such that those who do not agree with the ministry of bishops who are women are able to live their ministry um, well. We, we use the language of how we all flourish. Uh, we use the language of mutuality, uh, reciprocity. And we need to ensure that we are challenging one another in all that to ensure that those views are theological, that we have um, that we challenge one another theologically. Personally, I don't I can't see in scripture um, that uh, those views are valid, but I accept that others can. And I want to live church well more than anything. I want us to know how we live our differences well so it's a great joy for me and genuinely I can say that in the Diocese of Gloucester to go on building relationship with the churches who don't agree with having me as their bishop or the individuals perhaps who don't agree with me um, as uh, being a bishop um, who I have um, put their sacramental care into the hands of the Bishop of Ebbsfleet, Bishop Jonathan, and we work very well together, have a very good relationship. And I think we model something really positive, which is showing how we live in relationship well, we care for one another, we work together, and yet we vehemently disagree on a number of um, view of our views when it comes to women. That must be quite difficult, though, sometimes to be in the same room with somebody that doesn't even think you belong there. Yes. Are you able to rise above that yes and, and see I, the humanity and yes and I think it is about how we how we have those robust conversations and yet still live that love of Christ that we're called to live so you know at the moment in our society look at the way that people are really um, pulling apart over all the decisions around Brexit um, or perhaps a lack of decision around Brexit and and yet as a church, we want to say that we disagree with one another within the church over a whole host of things, including, I'm sure, Brexit. But how do we say we love one another and we keep going towards one another? And in the church and in the wider world again and again, I see people turn their backs on one another. Churches split because people don't agree with one another. And yet Jesus called us, uh, gave us a new commandment to love one another. And that doesn't mean always being nice to one another. I think often we think that um, loving one another is about agreeing. I have probably experienced most powerfully what it means to be the body of Christ when I have been with people, often through the debate over um, whether or not women can be bishops. When I have been with people where we have wept together, where we have argued vehemently and yet said, actually we know that we belong together and we're going to do all we can to walk side by side and that's often where I have felt um, in many ways the closest to God and felt that real pain that uh, Christ felt and feels in a divided church and yet which says do you know what we are still the body of Christ and uh, the eye cannot say to the foot or to any other part of the body I don't need you. But what would you say to those sort of evangelical churches that don't let women into eldership mm. still? Mm. I would say, please grapple with scripture. Don't just say, say to me, we are biblical believing, we are Bible believing Christians. So am I. Um, do some really, really hard study. Be willing to do that with other people who hold a different view from you um, and ask yourself 
what it means for all those women and girls in your church to be able to become the people God's created them to be. Um, at the end of the day, we may not agree, but please be willing to do that hard work together and listen to what girls and women might be saying to you. Um, some will hold the same view as as those leaders. Others won't. And we need to be listening and challenging one another. And for you, Bishop, what are the, the scriptures that really suggest to you that, that there is total parity between men and women in terms of leading the church? Mm. Well, there's lots there. We could do a very long interview about that. I would go back to where we, uh, what we spoke about earlier in Genesis, which is that we have been created equal. I know people often say equal, but different. Yes, we are different, but I don't think there was anything in there about leadership. Um, people often will talk about Paul and say that Paul um, viewed women as not being able to be the head of the church. I think we need to look at that culturally it's very clear to me that there were leaders in those churches um, Aquila and Priscilla uh, Junior um, they were there were women leading churches that Paul was involved with and what Paul was doing was reflecting culturally um, for all different reasons with those churches on how they lived well being the church um, there are numerous books uh, written about these things um, I would also want to point to the way that Jesus um, interacted with women. Yes, it's true that Jesus called those first 12 disciples um, as men. They were called um, as men. And yet I go back to what was culturally right in those days for, for Jesus um, as he built that early church. We also know that there were early disciples, followers of Christ who were women. We hear about them. Isn't it wonderful that the first witnesses to Christ's resurrection were women. I love that. And I think that was something about God saying something deeply significant. Um, I love the fact that uh, I was consecrated on the day when we celebrate Mary Magdalene. And um, I love that because there she was really as as the first, um, the first witness to Christ um, and the first evangelist and apostle and teller of the good news. But it's still the case, isn't it, that women only make up a small percentage of the, of the church in terms of its ministers. Mm. Um, what advice do you have for women who are considering going into ordination? I would say if you're considering it, uh, whether it's ordained ministry, whether it's lay leadership, listen to that whisper. Talk to people who know you. Most of us don't recognise our gifts until we talk to other people. Um, Listen to all those those doubts within you as well. I think women are very good at uh, thinking, oh, well, I'm good at that, but I'm not good at that. And we need to say none of us are good at everything. So let other people encourage you and go on exploring. Go and speak. Um, if you're um, within the Anglican Church, go and speak to your diocesan director of ordinance. Have those conversations. And if you're in a church where your vicar would not support you, your pastor would not support you, then do find other leaders, Christian leaders, who you can speak with. Um, go on praying, obviously. Go on asking, who is God calling me to be? Um, yes, it's really important. And it's important to speak to people, leaders who are women, I would say, in all of this and to hear their, their story. To move now to the the sort of wider debates within the, the mm. within the Church of England, um, it's General Synod starting today, 
um, which is one of the reasons you're you're down in London. And one of the big debates going on within the church is this idea of of same sex marriage. Mm. Um, do you think that in a similar way to the journey that the church has been on with women in leadership, um, that this is just another area that the church needs to catch up on, and and will it change its mind ultimately? Mm. Um, Perhaps this links a little bit to the question you asked me earlier about is the church trying to bend to to fit the world? And I want to start off um, by saying that God is at work in our world. The Holy Spirit is at work. And so I think we need to be listening to conversations that are going on in the world, not simply to say we must jump and walk and do what everything that's um, that the world, to use that expression, um, is doing and saying. Of course, we're called to be countercultural. And we need to be listening to saying, well, where might God be prompting us? Um, so that's one of those conversations in in this whole debate. I also want to go back to something I said earlier, which is about how we learn to disagree well. One of the ways I think the church can truly be prophetic in our world in this whole um, area is uh, to say, how do we have those conversations well that allow people to disagree I do want to say that we have all been created equal and everyone is welcomed by God. Everyone is invited to an encounter with Jesus Christ of whatever background, of whatever our sexuality. And so do I believe that the church needs to be, um, I'm not sure I would say catching up, I think that might not always be the right word, but listening deeply and saying where where have we been unjust? Where have we been unwelcoming? Where have we forced people to live secret lives and not be who they are? These are all things that I do feel passionately about. And obviously we're in this um, ongoing uh, period of um, creating uh, discussions around something called living in love and faith where there are people of different views and opinions uh, working with different groups and different leaders to to look at all these these areas um i also want to say it's time that as a church we were saying god welcomes all and what god calls us to is to live in good and loving and faithful relationships the church has not changed its doctrine on marriage. That is a big discussion in all of this. I think it's often hard for people to understand how doctrine um, is made and created um, by the Church of England. Um, we have not changed uh, our doctrine on marriage. Um, whether that will happen, uh, there is a whole process to be lived. But I do want to say as a church, God calls each of us to live as to live in loving and faithful and good relationship and the church needs to be um, putting that at the heart of all that we are and do going back to what you're saying about the welcome that that you know gay people and transgender people mm. need to have in the church mm. a couple of years ago you presided at the at a eucharist mm. for lgbt people um do you feel then that, that that that's something that has been overlooked within the church what I uh, presided at uh, was uh, a service which was organised by Inclusive Church. So of course, that that covers all sorts of um, of inclusion. And I'd want to say, yes, I think the church has been terribly unwelcoming. In fact, actually, um, I would go so far as to say um, has been unjust towards people uh, in the past. We have not enabled people to 
to talk about their sexuality and and who they are and so it's really important to me that as a bishop um, when I invite people to come and receive bread and wine I am offering God's invitation of welcome and so there I was presiding at a Eucharist which is what bishops do week in week out and saying all are welcome as followers of Christ to this table and I want to say that really loudly and clearly to all people. But you were criticised, weren't you, by some quarters for, uh, for attending that event? I was. And amusingly, um, it was actually put out that it was the first time the bishop had presided over um, a Eucharist for inclusive church um, or for um, those who had identified LGBTI+. In fact, that was a load of nonsense. Uh, a number of bishops, uh, lots of bishops, um, have presided at such Eucharists. Again, I think it's because... Uh, I guess because I was the first female Darson Bishop, I became very aware that anything I did in those early days attracted attention. And I, I had to be aware of that whilst not being apologetic for it, um, not to be scared of it. Um, there will be those I think who are critical. It goes back a little bit to what we were talking about with those who don't agree with female bishops. Um, we mustn't be fearful of having those conversations. We need not to throw mud at one another, I think, over social media or over emails. We need to have face-to-face -face conversations. Um, and we need to ask, what are we scared of? Mm. Um, when people say, well, that's not God's truth, I want to say, well, hang on a moment. Um, if God is God and God's truth is God's truth, then why are we scared at having conversations? We see in the early church uh, the Holy Spirit being at work and Christians are changing their views, being called by God to um, to eat meat, um, to, to touch things they thought were unclean, to, um, as we look at the early church, to realise that Christ's good news was for those Gentiles, i.e. those who were not um, Jews. Uh, we have to go on being willing to have those robust and difficult conversations. So if people want to be cr be critical, be critical, but have those conversations with me and with others face to face. Otherwise, we are not being the body of Christ. It's called to love one another. And there is currently a conversation, isn't there, um, within the church about transgender services mm. that's caused quite a furore. Um, there's been a big petition against it. Where do you stand on this issue? Um, I completely stand by the guidance that was issued by the House of Bishops. Again, I think there's been a lot of misunderstanding. Uh, social media is a wonderful thing. Doesn't always, I think, do us um, any good when people just get sound bites. Um, again, what the House of Bishops has said is that they have not produced a new liturgy or, or change liturgy. It's saying that we have liturgy and prayers that allow people at all different places in our lives um, to use that liturgy and mark uh, new beginnings, um, to mark changes in our lives. And baptism is once and for all. I'm absolutely clear on that. When I was baptised, um, I only had to be baptised once. For some people, they've come to a stage in their life where they are discovering new things about who they are or perhaps things they haven't dared to talk about or acknowledge before. And they want to acknowledge that before God. They want to acknowledge um, 
a change uh, so for transgender people they want to be acknowledging that they are who they are they may have changed their name as well and they want to be known by that name and it's saying we have affirmation of our baptism faith we have liturgy that allows us to affirm our faith and people can use that sensitively within services um, we can use all sorts of liturgy to mark endings and new beginnings people have done that whether it's been um, after divorce whether it's been after something else happening in people's lives how do we use liturgy well and creatively but it is not changing doctrine and it's not changing liturgy mm-hmm. But what about the critics who would say, you know, the Bible is quite clear about gender and, you know, in Genesis uh, at the beginning, God created man and woman. What would you say to those people who say, well, actually, isn't this simply affirming something that is is not within God's plan? I think where where we're going in this discussion is really talking about how we use scripture. I absolutely hold to scripture. Um, so I don't want people saying I'm not a Bible believing Christian. I am. And yet we have to wrestle with scripture. As I was just saying, as as the early church had to, they had to wrestle uh, with the Old Testament for them. What was the scriptures they had had inherited, um, which had still come from God. Um, we have to wrestle with that and say, who is God calling us to be as the church now here in this generation we are called to proclaim afresh in each generation the gospel of christ that doesn't mean the gospel has changed but we do have to look whether it's things like climate change we have to look and say how's god calling us to be as christians in all this so i would say what genesis uh, was pointing out um and i don't take genesis literally what i do take genesis to be is god breathed scripture which is about uh, showing us who god is and who we are And who we are is people. We are people created gloriously in God's image, Um, people who are equal. And we are called to be who God has created us to be. And we go on discovering that. I am not saying anything goes. I do want to enable young people who might be confused about their identity, which has always been thus for teenagers. I do want to enable people to explore who they are and not to be pushed into um, changes that are just pressures that are coming from them from those around or uh, from the culture they're in but I want people to be enabled to explore who they truly are and where we see people feeling they're living a lie that they are not flourishing in who they are because actually there's something about them which has never truly been acknowledged then I want to say as a church, we have to grapple with that. Um, So I don't have easy answers, but I do want to say to people, it's not good enough just to put our hands over our eyes and our fingers in our ears and say, the Bible says no. Let's not be scared to explore what that really means as well. And finally, Rachel, what are the big priorities for you in the coming months um, and, you know, this year Mm. in your diocese and elsewhere? Um, The Diocese of Gloucester has discerned together um, 
I think, a wonderful vision building on all that's been good in the past, which is around Jesus' words in John's Gospel, uh, chapter 10, verse 10, Jesus saying, I've come that they may have life and have it to the full. And we have um, a number of themes under that vision of leadership, imagination, faith and engagement, which actually spell life. Um, And we have a number of different priorities under that. It's one vision. one of those that I am absolutely passionate about and am doing uh, more on at the moment is how we do enable people to be those confident or those less anxious disciples uh, in living out their faith Monday, in fact, Sunday through to Saturday. Um, So that's something uh, we're really uh, focusing on. And during Lent, we've got um, an emphasis on something called Shapes for Living. It's really looking at how do we shape our lives um, to be followers of Christ in every aspect of our lives. And that's being built on something called a rule of life. You may well have heard of uh, Ben. Benedict from many, many centuries ago, who um, as a monk shaped a rule of life for the brothers in a monastery. And many Christians are discovering what does it look like to have a rule of life now? So in our diocese, we're calling it Shapes for Living. Um, It's all on our diocesan website. And there's a number of little videos I have made to go alongside our resources. And I'm going to be going around the diocese doing some teaching on that. And it's all about how we go on deepening who we are as followers of Christ and how we go on being followers of Christ in every aspect of our lives at Sunday through to Saturday. So that's just one aspect of our, our vision. Um, the other one is very much about how we engage with our wider communities. How are we being good news? How are we are engaging with partners and others uh, in the amidst the hopes and needs of, of our communities in our different contexts and struggling um, and living Um, what it means for us to be engaging with the wider world as Christians. Well, they all sound like brilliant initiatives. I wish you best of luck with it. And thank you ever so much for coming and joining us today. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Well, sadly, that's all we've got time for here on Premier Christian Radio. But see you next week, same time, same place.